Welcome back to the Right Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Pomeroy. Here, I interview fellow professionals and learn about the human beings behind the credentials. You'll be touched by their stories as well as learn from their professional knowledge. Keep listening. The next guest might be the right fit for you. All right. I just want to introduce you to my client, not my client, to my guest today. So this is Amy Clements Hadfield. Amy is awesome. You're going to think she's great. Um, Amy is a MSW here in the Salt Lake Valley, and she does experiential therapy, which she will explain all about what that is and why it's important. And uh, Amy is the owner of Harton House, which is a, how did she describe it? It was, it's a, um, off, it's office space for healers. And it's located in downtown Salt Lake City. So I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. We talk about the role of being embodied in our healing and experiencing through our body versus just being in our brain. And we talk about the various roles that we have um, and how looking at those roles and trying to understand them better can help us live a, a more integrated whole life and a more authentic life. All right, so we'll jump in. Here's Amy. Is my mic okay? Yeah, you sound great. Okay. Great, yeah. Do you have some fancy recording stuff there, it looks like? Um, I don't know. I'm in my husband's office because I didn't go, <laughs> I didn't brave the snow for downtown today. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm telling you, that was smart. My kids are home today for Focus Friday, and so I had to have some quiet space, so I had to come into the office. And I don't know, every single route had some sort of accident, and I was yeah. like, Ah, yeah. so I am sorry. Thanks for being patient with You're me. You're totally fine. I just, I, and I think that like, I'm, it looks like I'm in a mess of a record collector. I am. <laughs> I mean, that is a beautiful collection. How cool is that? So, is this so, your collection or your husband's or both? My husband's. Okay. And I bet like five of them are mine. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Has he collected for a long time? It sure looks like it. Yeah. Like his whole life. So he, uh, like late seventies, early eighties, high school era. That's his thing. That's just awesome. So cool. Well, um, I am just thrilled to be able to have some of your time and be able to chat with you. Um, I found you on Instagram and I just thought, uh, she has a very magnetic personality and I just think, you probably have a really interesting um, point of view with your clients. And so I just am so grateful that you're willing to do this with me today. Well, I was so grateful that you asked. Um, I, I feel like the work that I do is weird or different. Um, I like the air quotes with that. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and so sometimes it can be, um, it can need to be explained. So having the invitation for the opportunity to, explain the work that I do and also how it relates to my story and how I got into this work is really exciting for me. Yeah. Well, that's actually where I want to start. I think that's always so fascinating to hear how you started or what your story is with wanting to even become a therapist. Yeah. So, um, so I'll just jump right in if that works. Yes, please do. Hey, so this is my second career and I, my background was in the tile and stone industry. So I worked with tile, like 
yeah. floors, bathrooms, um, things like that. And, uh, and, and stonework. And, um, what brought me to this work was that, um, I have a ton of siblings, three of them struggled with substance abuse. And so with watching their struggles and not having under any understanding of the addiction world, um, my honest thought process back then was very much, why can't you just stop mm-hmm. and not having any understanding of addiction at all? It was kind of like, okay, what's wrong with these three? And so, um, cause it's three out of seven biological siblings. So it was about half of us. Yeah. And so what happened was my two brothers were involved in the criminal justice system. So they were kind of in that cycle of, um, get clean because of incarceration, stay mm-hmm. clean for a little bit, violate probation, go back. Um, another sibling ended up in a residential treatment facility here in Utah okay. that had a family week program. So mm-hmm. I attended family week mm-hmm. at the treatment center. And my mind was blown Hmm. and it was blown because nobody had ever told me that addiction is a disease. Nobody has ever told me that addiction runs in families. Nobody had ever told me anything about it so that I could understand it as a family member. And so about probably nine weeks in, so it was the third family week, I had been really just kind of praying and putting it out there that I was ready to, to make a change in my career. Mm-hmm. And I felt really strongly. I, what happened was I walked into the bathroom at the treatment facility and I got hit with, this is where you belong. And I thought, well, that's really funny. Oh, interesting. And so that was the day before Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I was like, that's really funny because I have no experience in this. Like I literally sell rocks. (laughs) (laughs) And so I realized that I could, um, that Salt Lake community college had a social work program. And I thought, well, semesters start in January. I can, I can do that. And so they told me it was impossible to get enrolled and get into any classes. Well, I got into all five classes I wanted in the timeframes I needed them and I jumped right into school. And so I did, I just raced through a bachelor's degree and, um, and then went straight into my master's program. Mm -hmm. And my focus was helping families with addiction problems. Okay. And that, so that's where all of my academic research was. That was where, um, that was where I thought I would end up career-wise is really working with families and developing programs. And then I got an internship at an outpatient substance abuse treatment center. And I thought, gosh, I cannot work with these people Hmm. because during the course of my, um, my education, I ended up losing a brother who passed away because of his addiction. And that was really hard for me. And I didn't think I would be able to help anybody ever who was struggling with those things because of, you know, the projecting and all of that. And so Mm -hmm. I got this internship and it ended up being a really great experience for me um, Mm -hmm. to, to realize that my experience can inform how I help other people. Sure. 
And so when I found experiential therapy methods, mm-hmm. um, cause what they teach us in grad school is basically check yourself at the door. Mm-hmm. And right. And, like you, you don't have a place as a human in this room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so I didn't want to be a therapist until I went to a psychodrama training uh-huh. and I thought, oh my goodness, I can do this. Ah. It is not because it's, because it, it, I can see the results. I can watch the work and it's not 50 minutes of kind of the same thing, which works really well for a lot of people. But as a, as a therapist, I struggled with just sitting I just struggle in general with sitting still for an hour. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Well, well, can you, um, just for our listeners, can you say what is experiential, like what are experiential methods? And I'm sure maybe you'll talk more about what psychodrama is. Yeah. So experiential, excuse me, experiential methods are basically anything that gets us out of our head and into our body. So it's an umbrella term really for, um, things like yoga therapy, trauma-informed yoga. Um, EMDR is actually an experiential method. So is brain spotting. And so it's really, um, the definition would be just anything that gets us out of our, out of our head and into our body with the idea that trauma and emotion live in our body. And if we can connect to that, then, then we don't, um, we don't think so much, um, Mm-hmm. Something that was said in an early training that I went to that really stood out to me was that we can't think our way into acting differently, but we can act our way into thinking differently. Oh, I like that. And so I don't know the source for that, but I heard it from a man named Mark Kinsler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it can be uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, art therapy, dance therapy, gestalt, which a lot of people recognize as the empty chair work. Mm-hmm. Um, meditation and mindfulness, a uh, lot in metaphor and story and poetry, um, music, uh, sculpting, which is kind of um, making a visual representation of a family or a situation. And then uh, somatic experiencing, which is feeling stuff in our bodies. Um, Santre, which a lot of people are more familiar with. Um, group psychotherapy and um, psychodrama among many others. So basically anything that gets you you into your body to experience the work is experiential therapy. So wilderness, outdoors, equine, those things all fall under it too. Right. So there's quite a bit under that umbrella. Yes. It's a very, very large umbrella, but basically get into your body. Mm -hmm. And, and then psychodrama is that you say when you went to a training, it spoke to you. It's like, yes, I want to do this. Yes. So psychodrama is fascinating to me because of the theories behind it. And it's a, people think it's a new method. It's a very old method. It's been around since like the twenties or thirties. And, um, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. You're putting on a little play (laughs) about, um, about whatever it is. So the idea in a kind of a nutshell is that having a conversation with someone or some part of ourselves in real time and experiencing the conversation is that our body doesn't know the difference. If it is um, having that conversation with a person in the room or in kind of a surplus reality. And so if I, um, for example, in my own work, I have had conversations with where my 17 year old self 
confronted my stepmother about something that I overheard her say that was really hurtful to me that I carried for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. And, and so in a, in a psychodrama piece, I was able to get that out and have that conversation. And so that part of myself was able to heal without having to confront the person. Without actually having to have that, that conversation IRL, right? In real life. Yes, exactly. And And that's interesting that you say that your brain can't tell the difference between kind of imagination, like things you're imagining or putting on a play and reality, or at least it, it can shift and change you just, just in the same way. Yes. And that's, and that's what we, that's kind of what we find is that even in watching. So in psychodrama, the therapist is referred to as a director. Um, and so even in directing a piece of work, I will watch a client reverse into the role of a child Mm -hmm. and take on immediately without even thinking about it, take on the mannerisms of that child. Um, and we represent the characters with scarves. They put on a scarf. And so, um, maybe they'll hold the scarf up higher and kind of look up at, at the, at the, the person standing in the role of their adult self in that moment. And it's, it's very interesting because it's very embodied and, and we get to meet the, the characters kind of through their lens because the person doing the work, the, the, the client is embodying that person in that moment. And it's, it's hard to explain, but very cool to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that's a very cool intervention. Yeah. I've been really interested um, in the idea of embodiment and experiential therapies being in your body um, just personally and then professionally as well. And so I love hearing about this uh, as just kind of another method of helping people heal. It's awesome. Right. Yeah. Cause talk therapy can be great and helpful. And that's when I go to therapy, yeah. I go do talk therapy. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I have my, my therapist here locally is a talk therapist. And so I just do talk therapy and then I do the experiential work in a, I have a, a closed group that I participate in, in, uh, in Tennessee. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So really, I mean, you're not saying talk therapy is not helpful. You're just saying this, this works well for me as a therapist. This is another way yes. that other people can also explore if they're going, maybe there's something else that could maybe be more helpful that this is something different. Right. So it's very helpful when people are stuck. A yeah. lot of people come to me, they've worked through some things in talk therapy, and then there are other things where they just feel stuck. And, um, and this kind of, this work helps get unstuck. So it's a perfect companion. It's not, a, I don't see it as necessarily a replacement or, or saying there's anything you know, negative about talk therapy. It's just a different method that, that resonates with a lot of people. And it's based in creativity and spontaneity, which is a part of us that a lot of us have, have kind of put away and we're very uh, cognitive rather than playful and things like that. So Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just another route that gets to the same thing. Um, Bessel van der Kolk mentions psychodrama in the body keeps the score as an effective intervention for trauma. Yeah. Wonderful. Because, and I imagine it is because of that body piece. That's why it's helpful with, with trauma. Yes. And, and for me, in my personal experience doing pieces of trauma of my own trauma work, Mm -hmm. 
my body feels the release, the tears that I cry mm -hmm. in the psychodrama feel different than the tears that I cry in real life. Hmm. When I'm, when I'm, when I'm trying to keep it together or, 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 or be strong or whatever. And so the, the catharsis for me personally, and doing my own work, the catharsis feels very real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's amazing to be able to tap into your body and be able to feel the change in your body versus just in your brain, just in the stories that we're telling ourselves or the thoughts that we're having, that there's like a literal shift in the body. Yes. And that's something I'm continuing to work on, trying to build that bridge um, between my, my brain and my body. Because I think, I think like a lot of people, um, my, I had a strategy of severing that. Mm -hmm. Like I can stay in my head so I don't have to feel what's in my body. Yes. And it's taking a lot of practice to be able to relearn that language in a, in a way, like actually listening to the signals in my body, but then there's this part of what is that that's happening in my body? Right. What does that mean? So I think, uh, I think this embodiment part is really important. Yeah. And that's, and that's a lot of what I teach people is just, just listening to the body right? Like not everyone needs to go into a full psychodramatic piece, right? A lot of it can just be like, okay, we say, trust our gut. What does that, what is that? Yeah. Right? What is, what is intuition? What is, what is my creativity and how do I learn to trust it? Because we're, we're, it's in many ways, it's taught out of us as children, right? Yeah. Color within the lines, you're too old for, for the toy. Yes. It's time to grow up. Let's be a, let's be a big girl or let's be a big boy. And I even hear adults say, well, I put on my big girl panties today. Uh -huh. And what about the little girl? If the little, to me, if the little, if the little me is, is screaming, mm -hmm. she's probably got something very important to say. Yes. Yeah. And if you're not listening, she's going to scream louder. That has been my experience. <laughs> she will get your attention in whatever way possible. Right. Or my body will, right? Like if I'm not, if I'm not paying attention and I allow myself to get overstressed, overworked, or, um, I had an experience where I kind of put grief on the table, like put grief on a shelf so I could focus. Yeah. Um, I got really sick. My mm -hmm. body was like, oh, you're not going to slow down and sit in this. We're going to make you. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and that's what, that's what happened for me somatically was that I, I ended up when my brother passed away, I was in my last semester of undergrad wow. and I very intentionally told myself he, he passed away in January. I told me that I, I just have to get through, mm -hmm. just have to get through to graduation. Yeah. And then I can, and then I can feel that. Right. But what happened was, is that I, and I, and I did, I, I pretty much shelved it mm -hmm. for, for, for those months. And by the time I, by the time the last week of school, I remember there was a final that I did to what I thought would be enough of a grade that I would get the grade I needed in the class. And I submitted the final online and I added the note. I understand that this is incomplete. Please grade it accordingly. Oh. Like 
my body, mind, and spirit were just done. Mm-hmm. And then I think I slept and cried for a week and a half. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've had some kind of similar, um, I don't know, awakenings, I guess, where, um, I have dealt a lot with depression and anxiety throughout my life, more so in my adult years than growing up. Um, and I had a client share this with me actually recently, and I just loved it so much. And I think she got it from Drew Carey on a podcast. I'm going to try to attribute to who it, you know, belongs to, but he, he talked about how depression, um, can be like when you're depressed, it can be deep rest. And that has been kind of striking me. Like when my body is telling me, you know, when it's showing me that I'm depressed, it's like, what do I need? Do I need deep rest? Yeah. And so I think anyway, be learning that language of the body, I think is so vital. And if we don't listen, it will tell us in other ways, right? It'll come out sideways and other things. And a lot of that can be somatic. Yeah. And for me, in my experience, it's really not just about the, the mental health side of it. It's about the physical health and like physical, emotional, spiritual, creative, intellectual, all of those things all together. Um, I have iron deficiency anemia that, that is pretty severe and pops up, but how it shows up is really, it feels like really, really severe depression. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So so kind of like what you're saying is like, it's a, it's a message like, okay, we're knocking here. We need to, we need, we need you to, to check in with your body. Right. Um, and so, but what I realized is that if I had gone the mental health route and said, Hey, I'm super depressed, mm. they, you know, we would have looked at medication. We would have looked at more therapy. We looked, would have looked at all these things, but, but my problem was in my blood, right? Absolutely. A problem in my body. Mm-hmm that was probably a symptom of me doing too much and, and trying to, you know, do all these things at once and not, not paying attention to my nutrition and to my supplementation and all of that. But it's interesting how it all ties together Mm -hmm. to me is that it really, the body is fantastic and weird. I say a lot, I say, well, humans are weird. (laughs) Like bodies are weird. (laughs) Would it be okay for me to share a little experience, um, here, I I guess I'm asking you and myself as I asked that question, Um, but I actually was part of a ketamine treatment group for mental health care providers just a few weeks ago. And so lots of things that I learned there are still fresh with me. And so it comes up quite often in my conversations anymore, but but this is as, as you're talking, um, I had kind of an out of body experience happen during this ketamine treatment. And, um, the big aha that I took away from that was having this understanding of what my body did for me. It was like, I did when I didn't have my body, I didn't have sensation, right? Like I couldn't feel my body, but I also didn't have access to any sort of emotion. Wow. And it was a really kind of interesting thing to go, okay, like if I am not embodied, like literally feeling like I'm floating outside of my body, I don't have access to like emotional information 
or information about the world around me sensed through my body. And it was just this really um, significant insight that I had, that I actually experienced coming back to that experiential thing where we can talk about embodiment and then we can experience embodiment. And so through that experience, I now have a much better understanding of what my body does for me. I am constantly asking my clients, sorry, my nose is a little runny and I don't have a tissue, tissue. I'll use my sleeve. Uh, <laughs> um, but my, you know, I'm always asking my clients, where do you feel that in your body? And I just have a much better understanding of what that even means and why that's even important. Yeah. So, which is something that's really hard to explain. I had a man in a workshop a couple of months ago ask, you keep saying this, you, you keep saying, yeah. where do I feel it in my body? Why, why does it matter? Right. And yeah. It's really hard to explain yes. that until, until you're in it. Yes. And until, until you have had the experience of, of, you know, being stuck in the head versus being in the body. Um, and I had actually an experience in my very first, uh, in my very first psychodrama training, I was, um, this is going to be really hard to illustrate because I'm going to make a face, but I'll try to explain the face I make. So, okay, that that works. so I was asked a question and I don't remember what the question was, but I was feeling really out of place, really, uh, like I didn't belong in, in, in that world. I was with people who were really talented and accomplished and had been doing this for a long time. And I felt like a scared little girl. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I remember standing there and I was trying to explain something and I was looking up, like my eyes were, were very up. Like I was trying to answer the question from a place of like thinking really hard. And my trainer, her name is Mary Bellafato and she's a psychodramatist, but she said, don't look up, look in. Hmm. She said, you're, when you're looking up, you're in your head, hmm. look down, connect with your heart. And as soon as I did that, hmm. the answer just hmm. fell right out of me. Wow. And, and how she explained it is that our bodies know different things when we're standing or when we're sitting or when we're looking up or, or whatever. And so it's now it's a big joke in my psychotherapy groups, because if somebody is stuck, I say, stand up. And everybody else in the room is like, oh man, we're in for it. Like buckle up. <laughs> Something cool is going to happen. But so it's just like funny. Um, in my, in my, the groups I do at a recovery center, like they know, like if, if I'm like, okay, hey, stand up. There is some yeah. truth about to fall out of somebody's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you're tapping into something else mm -hmm. just by changing the posture. Yep. And they all know it. They all know it works because I've done it, especially if I've done it to them, they're like, oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. I love that. Just by standing up, they're in their body in a different way. So they're, so the mind knows something very different and it's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, so when we were talking about, you know, topic of discussion for today, we talked about this idea of um, healing through the body and, and being connected and the experiential therapy. And you also mentioned that you do a lot of work um, helping people in their roles. Can you talk about that? And what do you see in your office in relation to roles? Yes. So, um, and this kind of comes from, you know, we're in this era where we, spirituality and social work are, are 
or spirituality and therapy are really colliding, right? And we're seeing that 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 spirituality is an integral part of recovery from anything, right? Um, whether it's substance abuse or trauma or depression or anxiety or just feeling overwhelmed or unseen, um, that that spirituality can play a big role in healing. And we're seeing a lot of like spiritual healers. Like I own a a business that's a space, a healing space. Um, and we have therapists who work there and we have, um, like Reiki providers and massage therapists and, and things like that. So Mm -hmm. what, um, but what I hear a lot in the spiritual space and in the therapy space and in the self-improvement space in general is a lot of talk about, being our highest or best self. Yeah. And, and my reaction to that is cool, but then what do I do tomorrow? Uh-huh. Right. Like applicable to real life. Yeah. yeah. Like if I, if my goal is to be my highest and best self, that's awesome. But after I get that, after I achieve that and experience that, what did I just go down, back down? Like if I'm at the top, what am I supposed to do? So this idea of whole self, really resonates with me. And, um, and I will say it's, it's not my idea. It is, um, it's actually based the, the idea of the roles is, is, has a lot of basis in the work of JL Moreno, who, um, basically founded, I guess, psychodrama, um, psychodrama is based in Moreno's work. Um, and Moreno talks a lot about the roles. And then I was listening to a book, called the spirit of healing by Louis Melmadrona and his work is focused a lot in, um, the kind of the, where contemporary North American medicine and indigenous medicine collide. He is an indigenous uh, man who was raised on a reservation. And so he's familiar with, with those healing traditions. Mm -hmm. And then he went to Stanford medical school. So he's, you know, well-versed in both. And so he has a lot of um, really cool ideas where, you know, medicine and healing and all of that, how they intersect. Yes. But what was interesting to me is that I was, as I was listening to his book, he was describing something and I was like, oh my goodness, Mm. this is Moreno's role theory. Hmm. So, so Dr. Melmadrona is, is explaining this. It's a Lakota belief. Okay. That sounds very familiar to me because I learned it. Psychodrama. Psychodrama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me, that was like, oh, well, it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right? Like, like, like there's no way that Moreno would have known about this photo uh, story. And right. so, so it's very interesting to see that, um, that the, the, the beliefs are kind of parallel, but so the roles, basically what the idea is that we play these roles in our life Mm -hmm. and we play the, the roles that immediately come to mind for me are mom, sibling, daughter, um, therapist, business owner, you know, these, these roles. But then within that, the way that I perform my sibling role with one sibling is very different than the way I perform that role with another sibling. So, and, and even, you know, and even deeper. So there are these layers, right. Mm -hmm. Of of roles. So the idea is kind of that we can, um, 
we can be in a role and then we have to often switch to another role. Um, working parents resonate with this one a lot yeah. <laughs> that, that those roles, there's conflict there. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of times it, it's unclear what our role is. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my life, I spent a lot of time in the parent role mm-hmm. for, um, one of my parents and in the parent role for my siblings. And yeah. so my sibling role looks an awful lot like a mom role sometimes. And mm-hmm. my daughter role has looked an awful lot like a mom role sometimes. Right. And so, so the roles get confused. And so what that looks like in my life is that I have said things to my siblings that were more, uh, kind of authoritarian, like you need to, you need to just do this, right. You, you yeah. need more like a parent would say, and that's caused hurt. Mm-hmm. It has, it has caused hurt in my relationships because what my sibling may need is a sister and I step into that mom role. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so the idea is that, is that it, when we are healthy, we can, we can move between the roles with a, with a fair amount of ease. We can leave work at work. We can leave home at home. We can hold boundaries. We can, you know, we can, I can, I can say my sister doesn't need a mom. She doesn't need me to be her mom. She just needs me to be her sister. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't need to fix this. I don't need to step in. I don't need to save. Um, And so when we're getting clear on our roles, then we can get, get clear on things like what are the rules of this role? that I've been told by outside. And for a lot of us is I, you know, in a mom role, I need to be a perfect listener, a perfect housewife, a perfect, (laughs) perfect taxi driver. Uh (laughs) Right. And, 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 and so, so getting clear on those expectations and saying that gives us the opportunity to say, okay, well, well, what do I get from this role? How do I play this role? How do I, how do I take this role and, and really make it my own? Mm-hmm. You know, does my role as a sister include some aspects of a mom role? Yeah. 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 That's really, that's really interesting. I see this play out a lot with couples that I work with mm-hmm. where they are not being, they're not playing the role of significant other or romantic partner. They're playing the role of parent child. Right. And then, and then it seems like one reinforces the other. Mm-hmm. So if one is being the parent, then it it really kind of influences or impacts the other person to play the child part and vice versa. The more childlike they're being, the more parental the other needs to be. And it's really interesting to see how the roles that we play kind of put people in, in a different role in what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a lot of the work that I do. It's, it's one of the, the first assessment tools, again, the air quotes, um, because it's not a checkbox list, <laughs> um, right. but, but I walk people through exploring some of the roles they play in their life. And because a lot of times, a lot of our stress is coming from not feeling adequate in a role. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, a lot of the, the men I work with, it's a, I feel inadequate in my dad role because work is demanding. My work role is demanding and right. I feel inadequate in my work role because my home roles are demanding. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's 
where the roles are colliding. And so the idea is for me to help them get to a place where they can say, okay, this is me. This is my whole self, my sum of, of who I am in these roles. Yeah. Right. So, so for me, that sum of who I am in these roles is I am a caretaker. Yeah. And that's, that's me across the board, no matter what role I'm in, Hmm. I'm a caretaker. I'm a storyteller. I, you know, kind of live in this land of like metaphor and whimsy. And that's regardless of my role. Mm. Those are, those are, those are me true at my core, but how to find those is by looking at each of the roles I play and finding, you know, where those roles stress me out. Hmm. And can I let go of something in that role? Uh, I did a lot of work around, I called it being the mother hen for my siblings Yeah, to, to, to say goodbye to that role that I don't need to be the mother hen for hmm. these other five humans that, that they may need a mother hen, but that's not me. That's, mm-hmm. that's not my role. And, but I had to look at that mother hen role and, and even think, what did it give me? Did it give me a sense of accomplishment, a sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm the stable one or, you know, whatever that was, but to really look at each role and see what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to change. Mm-hmm. Cause it's really easy to say, oh, I want to be happy. Uh-huh. And, and what would make me happy? What does well, that mean? Yeah. A fat retirement and never having to go to work again and a boat, right? Whatever that looks like for someone, but that's not reasonable. So let's, so we look really just small scale and kind of microscope in on, on, on the roles and what the roles mean to the person and how, what, you know, what's universal across the roles. And maybe if there are outliers, like, oh, I am a big jerk in that role Hmm. or I am very small and, and try to disappear in that role. Mm -hmm. Those are the, those are where the work might be. Right. Yeah. Other places that I see that coming up is like, you know, how roles or that I would be so curious about is like how roles change through time. Yes. Like in a, in a family where there's a very clear parent child role when you have a, um, like in the early formation of a family, but then as those children grow to be adults, then what does that role look like between parent and child? Um, so that sort of, and then, you know, becoming a caretaker maybe of a parent and how we work through, I guess, how roles change through time. Yes. Be really interesting as well as how we can, I notice my, for myself and for clients, you know, especially now with the holidays, when we're with our family, all of a sudden we turn into things and people that we're like, wait a second, this is not who I am. Why am I reverting back to this feeling of being a little child? Or why is my mom or dad treating me this way? And, and it can bring up some difficulty. Yes. And that's because we slide into the role. And that's what I teach families of people with addiction is like, if the family system doesn't heal, then as soon as the kid comes home from rehab, mm-hmm. there's a very good chance they're going to go right into their role. Cause they're playing an important part. That's keeping the family running how it's running. Yes. Cause the family wants homeostasis, even if the homeostasis sucks. Yeah. Like, even if it's unhealthy, the family wants homeostasis. And so the system wants homeostasis. And so that's a lot of the work I do with families is, okay, what are the roles now? Mm-hmm. It's because the roles you're exactly right. It's a, it's a very different role, parent, child, when the child is an adult. Yeah. 
And how I illustrate this, I have people draw a map and we draw circles that represent the, the, the size, the size and the distance from me that the circle is represents that role. And so I'll draw it. And, and for me now, sibling is small and not, it's not as close to me. Or right. so important. Yeah. But then I will always say six years ago, and then I take my marker on the whiteboard and I scribble the whole thing out. And I say, six years ago, this was sister. Ah, six years ago, sister overshadowed everything else in my life. Wow. And so you're exactly right. The roles can change over time and they'll change as we do our work. They'll change as family structures change with, you know, marriage, divorce, all of that, you know, even death and, and other sorts of loss, our roles in our family or, and in society, they change. So it's important to be aware that like those roles are different, but I illustrate that because, because of that very reason, because that role used to be all encompassing for me. And now it's more neatly packaged and, and not on me. Yeah. My mind is just spinning and I'm, you know, I'm going, and then this, and it plays out here and it plays out there. Another one that comes to mind is when I went back to graduate school after being a stay at home mom and the new adjustment of roles between negotiating with my husband between, okay, what does this look like when, um, now we are both going to be providing for the family or now I'm a student or, I mean, so this is dynamic throughout the lifespan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And on every level like that. Right. So student role then starts interacting with wife role and yep. mom role and provider role. And so it's really like, yeah, all encompassing, all encompassing. So I'm curious between these two kind of experts that you um, have read about, and I've forgotten their names, but the psychodrama expert and the indigenous man that you've read about, mm-hmm. what was it about the roles that you went, oh, that's truth, that they both kind of spoke to? I think it was the idea of, of a whole person. Okay. It was the idea that, that, um, and I think for me, it resonated with feeling comfortable in, in knowing that, that in some of my roles, I am very up front, very in the, I guess in the spotlight, right? Like, um, and in some of my roles, I get relief and I get to shrink. Mm. So for instance, in my, um, in my marriage, I am very lucky that, that in our, it's both of our second marriage and, and my husband really likes to do things like dishes and laundry and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And so I get some relief there from what might be perceived as a, as woman's work, right. right. Is, is that I, I, I don't remember the last time I used the dishwasher. Wow. I cannot tell you. No, <laughs> right. And that's what people think. Right. But then, but, and, but then that, so that has to do with, so in my, in my roles at home, I get to, and my body just did it. I don't know you if you did. saw it. Like yeah. get to sit back and I don't have to be in charge of everything all the time. And I don't have to be logistics coordinator and smart and bright and happy and funny, right? Like, 
in those, in those roles. And I guess it was the permission, right? Because I felt a lot of pressure that I needed to be that, um, in Myers-Briggs, I just found out that I'm an ENFP. So whatever that means, it means that I'm out there and all over the place, (laughs) make a decision, (laughs) like like whatever. And I'm not an expert in it, but, um, but so, so, so I felt a lot of pressure to be on all the time. Yeah. Because I was on in so many of my roles. And so learning about the roles has kind of given me permission to say, okay, in this role, I get to sit down Mm. in this, you know, in, in whatever, in, in this role. And even in my sister role now, uh, playing that role in a different way means that I can be present with what's going on for my, for my, particularly my sisters right now, but, but present with them for what's going on with them rather than, rather than being like, okay, how do we fix it? And just like, you know, in constant motion, trying to make everything better. Right. And, and so, so the idea of the roles and hearing it from these two sources, you know, they, they backed each other up. And so I, I was really able to see, to have permission to play each role in a way that felt authentic. Mm. So good. I noticed for myself, um, as you're kind of talking about that, going back to school and because I went back later in life, I'll say it's my second career, right? Being a stay-at-home mom for a decade. And this is kind of my second career. Totally. Um, I, <clears throat> I remember that, that I kind of had this unsettled feeling a lot as a stay-at-home mom at home where it really just felt like I had to be on. Mm -hmm. And then something shifted, not intentionally, but there was a shift that happened when I um, went down this new career route, all of a sudden home became a safe haven. Home became a place that I could sit back and relax. Right. Where, and so as you talk about that, that's kind of what comes to mind for me is like, yeah, that's what home has become. It's no longer my workplace. It's a place that I get to go and have respite from the world, just like everybody else in the house. Right. So yeah, very interesting. Well, Amy, you're a pleasure. And I have to ask you one thing because I find it so um, adorable and quirky and fun. Tell me about your stuffed animal collection. They're my coworkers. Yes. (laughs) So I have, have... did you say spreadsheet? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So Um, so I refer to them as my coworkers and it started out almost as something silly Mm -hmm. and then it grew into something really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. And the idea with them is we use them for group check-ins and we kind of, we kind of pass them around and they all have names and, and the, the, the people I do groups with think it's funny. Uh-huh. Um, and part of my role there apparently is to entertain them. And so <laughs> I learned last night because one was like, I thought the groups were supposed to be fun. <laughs> we're talking about something serious. Oh. And so, but so, but what I've found is, uh, so there are close to, there are about 60 of them now. 60. That's a lot um, of coworkers. Yeah. And they all have names and they all have, uh, they all have stories and personalities and mm. jobs. Yeah. Um, and, but as the collection grew, I was struggling to keep track of what their names were. So I made an employee directory and that's what the spreadsheet is 
titled. It says employee directory and there's, there's one human on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have one human who helps me uh-huh. and, and then, and then the rest are, are stuffed animals. But what I found, and it was really interesting to have someone else kind of witness it is that, um, people are really drawn to them. People know them by name. I had a woman stand up in a group recently and just stand up and announce, I need Ula. Mm. And Ula is a really soft unicorn that has, has, uh, a weighted bottom. So she's uh-huh. heavy. So okay. she's soft and heavy. And, and so Ula has a fan club. Charles Bradley has a fan club. He's a cheetah. Okay. Um, and but what we noticed, I brought them to a group the night before Thanksgiving because holidays are hard, they are hard. especially with people who are living in transitional housing and doing outpatient treatment, mm-hmm. which is the group that I, that I went to. And so I just thought I'm going to bring everybody. Mm-hmm. So I filled the back of my car <laughs> with coworkers and we, we, we went on a field trip to um, this office in Lehigh and I just laid them all out in the room and everyone had a different reaction. Some of the people had been in group with me before and knew that stuffed animals were a thing, but they were all over the place. Mm. And my co-facilitator, um, after the group, he said, I was, I knew about the stuffed animals, but I didn't realize how powerful they are. Mm. And so his experience of watching the people interact with the stuffed animals was that one person had checked in as feeling lonely and that person physically gathered stuffed animals all over themselves. Wow. And, and without even thinking about it, Hmm. made themselves unlonely with the stuffed animals. And that's what my co-facilitator said. He said, they were all so in their bodies Hmm. when they were with the stuffed animals. And he said, and they were telling me things without words by how they were interacting with the, with the, with the stuffed animals. And mm-hmm. so that's the, the really cool part about it is that in groups, I will, they will interact even just in checking in, they'll hold the animal. Some of them will put it on their shoulder as if it's a baby. Mm-hmm. Some of them will hold it in their arms as if they're rocking it. Sometimes they will put it on their lap and move its hands to talk with them. Sometimes they will set it aside. Mm -hmm. And so it gets them into their body and kind of gives them something that they need. And Mm -hmm. so, and I just gathered the stuffed animals from all over the place. And when I bought Ula, I bought her from Target and I realized I was walking around Target holding this unicorn doll as if it was a human child. Uh And, and then, um, when we were standing in line, I was rocking, kind of rocking, pivoting my body. Yeah. And I realized, Amy, you are a grown woman standing in the checkout line at Target, rocking a baby unicorn. (laughs) Right. This was my internal dialogue. You are rocking this baby unicorn. And I had the thought that I needed to stop. Mm. That 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 this was this was strange and weird, and people weren't going to, you know, people were going to think I was weird or whatever. Yeah. And then, but um, I've learned that it's often better to trust my second thought. Um, yeah, love that. <laughs> so, so my second thought was either she needs to be rocked or I do. Oh, oh that gives me tingles. So I just let my body do what my body needed to do. Yeah. 
and just, and, 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 and just, you know, embodied that. I, I don't know who needs to be rocked here, but there's rocking happening. So I'm just going to let it happen. I'm going to let my body do that. So, right. So whether it's, whether it's rocking that doll or crying tears or, um, needing to do a tense and relax to get some, some emotion out, like just letting my body do what my body needs to do has been a really important practice for me. Hmm. And then that kind of concretized it. It solidified it for me was, was that I'm perfectly okay to be a grown woman rocking a baby unicorn doll yes. <laughs> in the yes. middle of the line at target. And so that's what the coworkers are. The coworkers are whatever anyone needs them to be. I love it. Just so cool. Well, I imagine there will be a number of people listening that are like, okay, I am interested. And so if they want to find you, how can they find Amy? They can find me, my name, um, Amy, A-I-M-E-E, Clements Hadfield, and I'm certain it'll be written somewhere, but so it's Amy Clements Hadfield with A-I-M-E-E on Instagram. Okay. And um, then I am very easily reached through Heart and House, which is the healing space that I own and operate in downtown Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that way, and then I am part of a group practice called Vessel and Rail, and that the website is vesselandrail.com. And we are launching here in the next probably first part of January and will be all experiential therapy. Oh, how cool. And so we will create a space that is, um, that is all experiential therapy to really get playing and messy and creative and, and into our bodies. Well, that, if that is not an attractive, um, therapy, then I don't know what is right. Thank you. (laughs) So awesome. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Okay. I will stop the recording. Okay. I believe. Okay. A second. I promise it'll stop. Oh, it's because my microphone's on my mouse. Wait, friends, don't go. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you leave me a good rating and spread the word? Tell a friend.